Hey everybody, welcome to the College Info Geek Podcast. This is the show that teaches you how to be a more effective student, studying better, finding jobs, learning how to manage your money and do all sorts of cool stuff. And this month, I am unofficially deeming Japan Month. Because on the YouTube channel, I'm doing a series going through my challenge to myself uh, for to see how much Japanese I can learn within 10 days. And the reason for that is that I'm actually going to Japan on May 12th, and I will be there from May 12th until I believe June 3rd. So a pretty lengthy vacation, um, and I actually want to make this an actual vacation. So I'm the kind of entrepreneur content-creating kind of person that never really lets their brain shut off. And uh, due to that, when I usually travel, I find myself working more than I wish that I did, you know. And uh, this time I'm going with my girlfriend, Anna. She wants to have the time to relax and explore the country with me and all that cool stuff. So I want to front load a lot of my content and uh, be able to relax, you know, for once, because I don't do much of that. So that's why I decided to kind of combine my Japanese review and learning efforts with what was coming out on the YouTube channel. I thought it would be smart. And uh, for the podcast today, I'm actually going to talk about my first two trips to Japan, uh, basically how I set those up and how I made them go smoothly and how I did them for, I think, relatively cheap uh, amounts of money. So if you're somebody who wants to travel to another country um, and you want to save money on it, I think we've talked a little bit about travel hacking before back in episode 13 with Travis Sherry. And that was a long time ago, man. So this will be a more in-depth you know, overview of my own experience. And uh, I'll just be giving you my own tips, things that I learned in both trips, things that I'm going to be using in this trip. And maybe you'll find it useful. Otherwise, you'll find descriptions of Japan to be fun as well. That also brings me into an unfortunate announcement, which is that um, unless something weird happens, I don't believe I'm going to release episodes of this podcast uh, after this one until I get back from Japan. So let me just look at my calendar real quick because I am so prepared at this. (laughs) So let's see here. I'm going to be leaving uh, next Tuesday, which means I'm actually leaving next Monday because I need to go up to Minneapolis and spend the night crashing on a friend's couch to hit our very early flight. And then, uh, let's see, I get back Wednesday the 3rd. So I'm thinking either um, June 8th or June 15th is when the podcast will relaunch. I think the vacation and the time off will give me some time to clear my head uh, and uh, basically come up with new ideas. So I really want, there's like some guests I really want to bring on the podcast. Uh, There's a lot of content I want to cover, but you know, week after week making videos and making podcast episodes and uh, having blog posts come out when other people write them, it can take a toll. And, you know, if you listen to Listen Money Matters, the other podcast I'm a part of, we talked about burnout before, uh, on, I believe two weeks ago. And it's a real thing, you know, and I don't think I've burned out per se with this podcast, but I do think that I've gotten to the point where I'm like, okay, I need something to come out this week. Uh, pick topic out of a hat because we haven't had guests scheduled for a while. And I think it would be very good for my own sanity and for the quality of the show. If I just took a bit of a break, um, most of the reason for that is because I'm putting much more effort into the YouTube channel as of late, and I won't be taking a break for the vacation on the YouTube channel. There will be videos. Like I said, the Japanese learning challenge is coming out. That's cool. Um, but I'm going to take some of the pressure off myself by letting this podcast go on hold until I get back. Another reason for that is that I'm not letting Listen Money Matters go on hold. So 
If you would like to hear my voice over the next three or four weeks, uh, you can subscribe to Listen Money Matters and uh, and learn how to manage your money better because we will have episodes coming out every single week throughout May and June. Um, even when I'm on vacation and then right when I get back from vacation, Andrew's going on vacation. So we are front loading episode recording efforts. That takes up a lot of time. <laughs> and, and as I'm looking at it, my week from now until we leave, I guess it's about 10 or 12, 10 or 11 or 12 days. Uh, that I have in front of me is really, really busy. <laughs> I have to make four videos. Uh, one of those being the video on the question that I put forth in the last video, which is if you think you should change an answer on an exam, should you actually do that? So if you want to get the answer to that question and also the research on why the answer is what it is and uh, why our brains are messed up, then on Thursday, you'll find that on the YouTube channel. So all that's coming out, um, actually studying Japanese and trying to put a lot of time and effort into that. There's also subleasing my apartment, getting things packed up, and Anna is graduating from college. Yay! So I have to go to her graduation uh, ceremony, which I am totally happy to do, but that adds more things to the plate. So it's going to be a very, very busy next 10 or 12 days. And um, yeah, so hopefully you guys understand uh, if not, I'm very sorry, but I will be bringing back the podcast with a fervor, with a very fervent energy once we get back. I have some guests I really want to bring on, so fingers crossed that we can get them and uh, your brains will be expanded with their knowledge. So anyway, uh, let's make this episode, this final one before my vacation, worth something and uh, let's talk about how I actually got to Japan for cheap and traveled through the country for relatively cheap and how I did things. Now, I have had a note in my Evernote for uh, probably two or three years now. I see. Uh, I can't tell when I wrote it because it says when I updated it. But it's um, the Digital Nomad's Guide to Traveling Japan. And basically, this was the result of somebody emailing me after I had gotten back from my first Japan trip, wondering uh, how they could travel Japan to Japan on the cheap, what they should bring, how they could do work, and how they could get their money from their bank account. All those like weird questions that you think about when you start looking at traveling to another country. And uh, I wrote this girl a super long email, and then... I was like, I could do a blog post on this. So I just ended up writing out a huge, gigantic list of things. So let's go through that list. Um, if you are a Listen Money Matters listener, then this may be familiar to you because I, I did an episode on a lot of this on that show. Um, so if there's a bit of crossover here, sorry, but if you don't listen to Listen Money Matters, then this will be pretty fun new stuff for you. Uh, so let's talk about the flight first. Now, I did two different things on both occasions that I went to Japan. I went there in 2012, and then I went there in 2013. Now, 2012, I think, is the more usable method for uh, how I got my plane ticket. So basically, I did a bunch of research on how much a ticket from where I was, which was going to be San Francisco, actually, uh, to Japan, and how much that should cost. Now, the reason I was going to be in San Francisco is because right before the Japan trip, I was going out to uh, work with Adobe, for a few days, they had a event planned for college bloggers and, and influencers in that area. So I did that and I was like, hey, guys, instead of flying me back to Des Moines, why don't you just let me go to Japan from there? And then uh, I was actually going to New York right after. So it was a pretty crazy trip. But all that aside, I needed to find the best possible ticket price from from San Francisco to Tokyo and then back to San Francisco, I believe. Um, so. I looked on forums and people said generally the average ticket price you're going to find for that flight is like $1,100, $1,200. Um, sometimes you can get better. But what they told me, 
Uh, and I was looking at all these travel hacking forums and places like Flyer Talk, which has all these ridiculous nerds that like hack credit card mileage or mileage points and stuff like that. And it's incredibly complicated stuff. And if you want to learn about that, my friend Travis Sherry is the dude to talk to, not me. <laughs> but uh, they did say that you can use sites like Kayak and Skyscanner and uh, Hitmonk. Those are three of the biggest ones that I know of to compare flight prices. And one thing you can do with Kayak, at least, is you can create an account and then you can actually make a uh, alert. You can set up a price alert so you can tell it to alert you when tickets go to a certain price threshold that you want. Or you can have it set up just a daily or weekly email to tell you what the prices are. Uh, you, so basically I did that. And then I also looked at when I should, uh, typically buy my ticket. And I believe it was like, um, I think it was like four to seven weeks out are when ticket prices to Japan specifically tend to be the lowest. So if you buy way, way out, you're going to end up paying more. And if you buy sooner to the actual trip, you're going to end up paying more. The airlines do this because they've done research and they found out that on one hand, people who uh, tend to buy their tickets way in advance, their price sensitivity is quite elastic. Uh, and elastic price sensitivity means that if the price changes, then um, they're, they're fine to it. You know what? I'm, I need to Google this. Yeah, I might be putting this backwards. <laughs> um, okay, I think I was wrong. Uh, price sensitivity, if it's inelastic, that means a change in the price has a relatively low effect on the demand. So uh, people's price sensitivity far out is quite inelastic. If the ticket is 900 bucks or the ticket is 1100 bucks, they're just like, oh, that's so far in the future. Uh, I don't really care. And we've talked about this hyperbolic discounting before. Those things in the future don't matter too much. So they'll end up just buying it. Uh, and then people who need to buy it uh, the last second, obviously, they just need to get to the place that they want to go to. So they will buy it no matter or what uh and if you're in that nice little sweet spot then they can't get away with uh changing the price too much arbitrarily so you want to look for the best known window of time for the particular country that you're going to and from where you're at um to buy and you also want to look at the historical average prices now flight tickets pricing are is ridiculous and there are so many different factors that go into it airlines oversell flights they overbook they do all these weird things so the price um the price alerts are incredibly useful because you're not going to catch the price at its best point if you're just randomly looking at kayak or looking at skyscanner or whatever now doing this alert actually ended up uh, getting me a price that was far lower than the average price for a flight to Japan. I ended up paying, I believe, eight fifty for my ticket, which was incredibly good. It was about a savings of uh, three hundred fifty bucks on the average. So doing the alert was amazingly helpful. I saved a ton of money on the flight, uh, but I, I saved even more money on the flight the second year. So in twenty thirteen, I went with just one friend. Twenty twelve, I went with two. And the one friend had been to Japan in high school. He had been there as an exchange student and he had a family, the host family over there. And uh, I think his host family, uh, one of the people in the family worked for an airline. So airlines do this thing called buddy passes where airline employees will get a certain amount of these buddy passes and they can give them to friends and family, which enables them to get a ticket from wherever they are to wherever they want to go at uh, at basically the cost of whatever the airline has to pay. They're called non-revenue passengers. This means that you pay uh, a drastically lower price than most people because the airline's not going to profit off of you. It's a benefit or a perk they give to their employees, um, but it means that you fly standby. And in fact, you fly 
the lowest on the totem pole standby that there possibly could ever be. And uh, it makes sense. You know, they're not making any money on you. You're, you're just kind of filling a seat. So if there's a seat available, hey, you can get it. What we learned is that flying as a you know non-rev passenger with a buddy pass during peak traveling times, not such a good idea, at least not out of the U.S. Um, we ended up getting to Minneapolis from Des Moines uh, on the last seats on the plane that was going there. We got there, but then we actually could not get on a flight from Minneapolis to Japan at all. We tried one day where we waited for about five or six flights, uh, you know, nail biting, like just tension. Where are we going to get on? And they always closed with no seats available. So we would just like rush from terminal to terminal in the air in the airport with all this tension just to be disappointed. It was terrible. Um, but hey, this is what you get. You get what you pay for in this case. So we ended up having to get a hotel in town, which ended up being good because it allowed us to get this uh, train pass that I'll talk about later. So the next day we come back and again, we can't get anything out of Minneapolis. So we decide to hop on a plane over to Detroit Um, and then we tried to get from Detroit to Tokyo still didn't work. So as like a last minute gamble, we just said to the people running the desk, hey, can you put us on a flight to any airport in mainland Japan? And uh, they said, sure. So they changed our booking to be from Detroit to Nagoya, which is a city south from Tokyo. And uh, we said, hey, guys, we're going to do this. We're going to say if there's even one seat available, then we'll just put one of us on. And then the next people will take the next available flight and we'll just get there however we get there. And uh, we'll just meet up once, once we can. So I took the first available seat on the flight to Nagoya. Turned out to be a first class seat for super cheap. So that was one of the coolest experiences. They serve you much better food. Um, The seats lay down and turn into beds and the TVs are bigger. And it was just, it was a pretty posh experience. Flying coach back from Japan was a bit of a letdown, but eh, I've got to, I've got to bring that expectation back down to where it should be because first class tickets can be $5,000, $6,000 usually. And I'm not going to pay for that. So, but Hey, getting a first class ticket for one tenth of the price, pretty good deal, I think. And then turns out, uh, two of the people on the plane got kicked off for some weird luggage violation or something like that. And then my friend Ryan and his dad, who was traveling with us, uh, got to get on the same plane. So that was nice. Um, but that's basically, you know, that's how I saved a ton of money the second time. Unless you know somebody who works for an airline, you're probably not going to be able to take advantage of that particular type of ticket. And I've heard that they actually changed it recently. So uh, I think I think the person who works for the airline has to be traveling with you in order to share the buddy passes. So and that could that could only be affecting one airline or maybe it affects all of them. I'm not entirely sure. But, you know, it's something to look into if you have friends who work for airlines. Otherwise, you're best off looking to get uh, price alerts and looking at as many of the price aggregator sites that you can uh, find. Now, there's another tool I actually found on Product Hunt the other day called Clever Layover. I think you can find it at cleverlayover.com. I have not used it, but I think they look at lots of airline schedules and find the lowest price based on uh, two different airlines giving you a layover at a certain airport. So say you wanted to take a flight from like Des Moines, where I live, to New York. Um, and you know, generally if you took it on Delta, it would cost X dollars or, you know, American airlines, it would cost X dollars. 
I think what they do is uh, they combined they combine round trip tickets from multiple airlines that are not partnered and they find the cheapest way. So maybe there's a weird flight from Des Moines to uh, Atlanta, the biggest airport in the world from Delta. And then randomly there's a flight from Delta or from uh, Atlanta to New York on American Airlines. And the combination of these two actually ends up being cheaper than the direct flight from one or the other. Uh, haven't used it, but you can check it out. And there's lots of other cool flight price uh, aggregators and things popping up. So definitely check those out if you're looking for ways to save even more money on your flight tickets. But let's talk about a different form of travel, train travel. So as you may or may not know, in Japan, there's something called the Shinkansen. And the Shinkansen is a the bullet train. It's basically ridiculously fast train travel. Uh, and in Japan, you know, in most places that you would want to go, unless you're like a super nature junkie, you can get there via train pretty much all the time, you know, uh, especially in the big cities. If you want to go somewhere, a train will get you there and then you might have to walk like 10 minutes or less. It's pretty awesome. There's basically no need to rent a car. Um, renting a bike, however, is amazing, but no need to rent a car in most places. You can get there with the trains, but the trains, uh, this is the one caveat. The trains are more expensive than like say New York city subway taking the subway somewhere in Japan. is generally a lot more expensive. It's nicer. Uh, it's definitely a lot nicer, much cleaner trains, uh, much more polite interactions in the subway. I think in my experience, at least, um, the subways themselves are less dirty and you know, it's a nicer experience altogether. But it's not as cheap. Like in New York, I know at least within one borough, uh, it's two fifty flat rate for anywhere. Like if you want to go from Upper Manhattan down to Lower Manhattan, and it's you know like ten stops, two fifty. In Japan, you actually have to pick you know where you are. You go down to the the station where you are, and then you tell them you know where you're going to go. Um, you can buy a ticket, but you have to pay for where you want to go. So if I'm in uh, if I'm in Shibuya and I want to go up to uh, Akihabara, then I would have to look on the chart to see how much that costs, put that much yen into the machine, it'll give me a ticket to get there. And if you don't do that, then once you get to your destination, like say you missed your stop, or you decided, hey, I want to go somewhere farther instead, then you would need to buy an updated ticket to uh, to basically pay the rest that you owe. So it's more expensive, but the JR Pass, which is a pass only for out-of-the-country tourists, allows you to travel on any JR line. Now, there are multiple train lines in the country, but JR is probably the biggest one, especially for long, long-term long travel on the Shinkansen. Uh, unlimited travel on the JR lines for a fixed rate. I think for 200 or for two weeks, it's like 430 bucks, I believe. Um, and the, the yen exchange rates will change that price. It might be a little less actually this year because the yen to the dollar is not so strong as it was a couple of years ago. But I believe I paid 430 for two weeks time of a JR pass two years ago. And that was amazing. Like 430 bucks sounds like a lot, but if you make use of it, you save so much money. We ended up taking multiple trips down to different regions of Japan. Uh, we got to go see a volcano. We went to see Mount Fuji. All that, you know, flat rate. It would have cost us probably double had we not paid for the JR Pass. Now, the thing about the JR Pass is you cannot buy it inside Japan. Uh, you have to buy it from a licensed travel agent who has basically gotten permission from the JR travel company to sell these and uh, they are generally located in big cities and they don't sell you these things online. So what we ended up having to do is contact the travel agent who lived in Minneapolis Then we had to get a taxi to go to where she was. We gave her straight up cash and then we got our 
JR passes. It seemed really sketchy at the time. I was really spooked that it was not going to work out, but luckily it did. And we got the passes and then they printed out little laminated ones for us when we got there into the country and they worked like a charm. So definitely a highly recommended thing if you're going to go to Japan. And if there are other countries that sell tourist specific travel passes, uh, look into that. I don't know for sure, but I've heard that there are travel passes uh, for inter-country travel in Europe. And uh, I know, I think on Listen Money Matters, before I was the co-host, they did an interview with some dude who sets up these trips for people in different European countries. And he talks about a lot of the, the deals they can get as tourists. So look into that no matter where you're going. Also, another cool thing you can do with relation to train travel in Japan is get something called a Suica card. So uh, interestingly enough, people generally don't use credit cards to buy things in Japan. It's just not really a thing. I think some people have like RFID on their phones. They can use that for transactions. But as a tourist, you're going to be limited mainly to using cash. We'll talk a little bit about that later because it is important. But uh, in terms of train travel, the one exception is when you go down into the subways, you can buy what's called a Suica card. This is a preloaded card with money on it that lets you uh, travel on the trains with so much more convenience. It's amazing. So basically you put... You put like a 2,000 yen note into, actually, I don't make 2,000 yen notes. You put two 1,000 yen notes into the machine, uh, 500 of that, which is about five bucks, give or take. I generally equate 100 yen to a dollar, even though it's not exactly that right now. It's not always that, um, but it just for illustration purposes in your head, it works. So like five bucks gives you the card, and then the other 1,500 yen is loaded onto the card as your initial balance. Now, if you want to go somewhere, let's just use that same example as before, Shibuya to Akihabara. Now, you no longer need to go to a kiosk and put in yen coins to get the exact ticket you need. You just hold the card up to the little scanner, you go through the turnstile, you go on your merry way on the train, and then you leave. And it automatically does everything by magic, and you're good to go. Also, with the Suica card, many convenience stores will let you buy things with it. So like the 7-Elevens and the Lawsons and the Family Mart, you can go in and grab a snack, buy some groceries, and just swipe the Suica card and not have to fiddle with change in your pocket. This is really nice because as a basically cash-only society, you end up with just tons of change in your pockets. It's just, it's kind of annoying. So the more you can automate, the better. Uh, so that is what I have to say about train travel. Now, I talked earlier about the fact that there's no credit cards. So let's talk about how the heck you get money in this country. Um, obviously, you're not going to be coming into Japan with all the yen you need. That would be a little bit ridiculous. And you'll see at the airports, especially in the U.S., that there will be currency exchange stations. So you can go up to this person you can say, hello, I want to give you 20 bucks and I want you to give me yen for this 20 bucks. You will not get the exact exchange rate of yen to 20 bucks. You won't get 2,000 yen, for example, because they charge you a transfer fee. They charge you a fee to uh, translate your money from dollars into yen. So I did this. I ended up paying the fee, whatever. I had an initial, you know, a little bit of cash. I think it's smart to come into the country with a bit of cash just in case something goes wrong. But in Japan, at least, uh, airports, post offices, and uh, at least 7-Eleven convenience stores have ATMs. So bring your debit card, put it right in there, and you'll be able to get money as if you were in the States. The cool thing is, at least as far as I could tell, there is no uh, fee for it. It just translates the money immediately to yen, pulls it right out of your bank account, and you're good to go. It spits it out. There's no charge for it being in a different currency. 
So that is what I recommend doing for most of your cash. Uh, this is a society where most people will carry around a good amount of cash. So I wouldn't feel too weird about carrying around 200 or 300 bucks worth of yen. That's fine. Crime is really, really low in the country. Uh, as long as you're not stupid and like don't go around waving your cash and waving around a Rolex watch, just keep it in your front pocket. And, um, yeah, just go to the post office or the 7-Eleven whenever you need to get some cash. Now, as of the last time I was there, 7-Eleven, for whatever reason, had this problem with MasterCard where you can't get money with a MasterCard debit card out of their ATMs. So that's what mine is. So unfortunately, I was limited to post offices, and airports, and uh, wherever else I could find a machine that would take my card. It made things a bit more inconvenient, but I basically just had to plan out um, my my money stops around where the post offices were. This did result in one night in Kyoto where I had to walk about three miles to the post office because I couldn't figure out how the train would get me there and uh, to get my money there. And it was a little bit of a stressful situation. But in most cases, it's not a big deal. Just be aware of that um, and you'll be good. So we talked about airline tickets, how you can save money on that. We talked about train travel. Let's talk about the other probably biggest expense that you'll deal with when you're in a foreign country, and that is lodging. So in Japan, the best way to deal with lodging expenses is to stay in hostels. Um, hostels are basically like hotels, but they have very, uh, you know, pared down offerings. Their amenities are lacking and, um, it's not going to be like a, a posh experience, but at least in Japan, it doesn't matter. Like the hostels are really nice. And I've never had a problem with them. I really like them, actually. So what I would recommend doing is uh, creating an account on a site called HostelWorld.com. Uh, they actually have an app on the iPhone and the Android as well. And then you can easily just book hostel stays in advance. And what I recommend doing is booking your stays at least a couple of days in advance. So that way, you know, a lot of travelers will fill these places up because they're cheap. And if I want to give you some perspective, generally a night in a hostel unless you're going to a really high-end one, will cost you between $20 and $30. That's really cheap. If you want to be super, uber, mega cheap, you can actually make a deal with them in a lot of them that, I, that I've seen, where if you volunteer to help them clean the place from around 11 a.m. to 2 or 3 p.m., so maybe two or three hours or three or four hours of work every day, you stay for free. So that's something that you want to do if you don't have better things to be doing during the day or you don't have a better way to make money, uh, then, hey, you can stay for free and just help them clean. Um, I've noticed that in basically all the hostels I stayed in, they are incredibly clean. They've got usually they have shared showers and bathrooms. Um, it's not like you're standing around naked with a bunch of dudes. That did happen to me once that was in the cash, uh, the capsule hotels, not the hostels, but usually it's just like a bunch of shower pods or capsules, or it's like a bathroom that you can close and use privately, but it is shared between everyone and you know, you're good. They also have kitchen facilities usually. So if you want to pop down to the grocery store, find yourself some groceries to cook, then you can do that, you know, and that's a great way to save money on food. But yeah, that's how you save money on uh, lodging with hostels. And let's see here. What did I put here? Oh, I want to talk about capsule hotels. So the one time I had to stay in one was the first time that we got to Tokyo, the second time I was in Japan. So 2013, uh, like I said, we had flown to Nagoya instead of Tokyo. I had to wait for Ryan and his dad to get there. And then we took a Shinkansen to Tokyo, figuring we'd make that our home base for the first few days. We didn't get there until midnight, though. And at that time, all the hostels were either booked full or closed. 
So we tried to we were trying to find a place to stay, and uh, capsule hotels are your go-to solution when you're in that situation. Capsule hotels are basically if you've seen the pictures, it's like the cubby holes. It's like the shoe caddy that you see at like the McDonald's Playland. Uh, literally, is just like plastic tube, uh, rows upon rows. Usually, it's just two rows high though, and you go in there. It's like a two meter long, uh, one meter high, one meter wide box that you sleep in. Plastic. It's got a mattress. Got a uh, pillow and blanket and good to go it's funny you go in there you put money into a little like machine and it spits out a ticket and your keys so there is a person there to like make sure that you can figure it all out but if you wanted to there was actually no human interaction these things exist basically for people who go get drunk or stay out really late and miss the trains which do shut down unlike in new york city and if they need to stay overnight somewhere, they can. Uh, or if you're really tired American tourists and you have nowhere else to go, they work well. I think it cost about 30 or 35 bucks to stay there. So it wasn't actually that much more expensive. Um, but it wasn't, it was nice. It just wasn't as nice as most hostels I've stayed in. So keep that in mind, I guess. Now for food, let's see here. We did end up buying groceries a few times and cooking. You can buy ramen noodles. You can buy uh, like microwave meals. Those work pretty well. There are also some restaurants that really don't cost that much money. There was one called Yoshinoya. You can get like bowls of rice and meat and some vegetables with egg on top. And those are really cheap, like five bucks for a meal. Really not too bad. They also like McDonald's does exist in Japan. Burger King exists in Japan. I don't really recommend eating there. If you're in a different country, you should probably experience the food they have there. But I mean, if you really want a cheap meal, I guess it's there for you. Uh, I do recommend splurging every once in a while. There are certain meals in Japan like yakiniku, which is just the like, strips of the most succulent, amazing beef you've ever had. But it's actually raw. And there's a grill in the middle of your, middle of your table. You put it on the grill and you actually cook it yourself and then dip it in this amazing sauce. Those are some things you should have experiences that should be had when you're traveling. But for the most part, uh, if you can save money on food by cooking and eating at cheaper places for the most part, then you are going to end up keeping your wallet full, right? So definitely recommend doing that. So let's talk about telecommunications. Here's the thing about Japan. They, like the U.S., have a weird cell phone network that's not compatible with the rest of the world. Most of the world uses the GSM network. So if you've got a GSM cell phone, which I believe AT&T and uh, Sprint, I want to say... Or maybe it's T-Mobile. I think it's AT&T and T-Mobile, now that I think about it. They run the GSM networks. Uh, Americans got two types of networks, actually. Um, so you can take that phone, and you can get a SIM card, and you can go to a different country and get a SIM card that works for that country. Boom, you're good. Um, not so much for Japan. So I have a Verizon phone, and they do have a plan that you can set up where it will allow the phone to work in Japan, but it's mind-bogglingly expensive. Um like you're paying 10 bucks for basically no data, like the amount of data that Facebook would use to update once. It's ridiculous. So the first time I went, I ended up renting a phone, a smartphone from a place in the airport. And I believe it was about 200 bucks for the two weeks I was there. That was pretty cool. The Android phone worked pretty well. But what I recommend doing is what I did the second time I went there, which is renting a Wi-Fi hotspot. So for the same price, uh, 200 bucks for two weeks, I got a 4G hotspot with unlimited data. And that allowed me to use my phone however I wanted to, except for making phone calls. And who makes phone calls, right? You can, I used Skype. I would walk around 
on on the streets of Tokyo doing Skype video chat with friends back in the States, showing them things. And it was free. You know, I paid for the set amount of time that I needed and the data was unlimited. That's amazing. That is what I will always do from now on as long as that option is available to me. So do that. Um, I highly recommend having one of those USB backup batteries in your day bag, though, because at least for me, the hotspot and my own phone would actually run out of battery a lot during the day. And I find that even if I'm trying not to use it too much, my phone will eat battery like crazy when I'm traveling and not too much when I'm at home. That's just the rule of life. And as such, a rule of Tom's travel is that there will be a backup battery in my day bag no matter what. So, yeah, um, let's talk about packing, actually, because that's a cool thing. I am a person who does not like to check bags ever. So as a result, I am a one bag traveler and it makes things so much less stressful, so much more fun, so much more freeing. Like it just feels like you can go and do anything because you don't have to lug this gigantic wheelie suitcase behind you. Now, some of you out there will say, this is crazy. I need to bring my swimming pool and my TV and my uh, 18th century uh, antique writing desk with me to my destination of choice. Um, some of you out there will say, it doesn't really matter. Why don't you just leave the suitcase in the hotel? My girlfriend says that. But personally, the act of traveling with just one bag is so freeing. It's why I backed the Manal uh, travel backpack. It's, I think it's called the carry on backpack on Kickstarter when it came out and it's sitting right next to me. It's my go-to backpack every day. It opens up like a clamshell suitcase so I can pack everything in there nicely. And I love it though. The first two times I went to Japan, to Japan, I didn't have it. I got it right after Japan. So uh, any old backpack will do as long as it's got a lot of space. But obviously if you do this a lot, you will figure out what you like and don't like in your backpack and upgrade accordingly. Um, but here's what I recommend to bring with you to Japan and girls, you may have to augment this a bit, but for dudes, uh, two shirts, two shorts, one pair of jeans, and then, uh, two pairs of socks. If you can get the socks called, uh, I think they're made of Merino wool. These are socks that can be washed and dried very, very quickly. Um, underwear, you can bring two pairs. There are these boxer briefs called ex officio boxer briefs. I think they are the exact same kind of thing. And then one pair of gym shorts. Now, for socks and underwear, I actually bring usually three or four of each because I don't have these very fancy things, which I've heard about from other travel hackers. But uh, just go light on the on the clothes because they take up a lot of space in your bag. You may want to bring a hoodie as well. I recommend that. Um, and what I do is I get these things called vacuum sealer bags. And you don't need a vacuum to actually seal them. They ziplock shut. And then they have these one-way holes at the bottom. So you can actually roll the bag up. It will squeeze all the air out of them and it just compresses down to this really small clump of clothing. I shove that in the backpack and good to go. And then I bring a compact toothbrush, toothpaste, floss, razor, all that cool stuff. A lot of this stuff can be bought in the country. So um, a travel tip that I, I learned from my friend Colin Wright is that don't don't sweat too much about small stuff like toothpaste and stuff because it's just like your hometown. You can buy that stuff at a convenience store. It's not going to run you very much. And if you're stressed not about it when you're packing, don't worry about it, you know, unless you're going to get there at like midnight and you need it and there's no stores open. But Tokyo, you're going to be fine. Uh, also, laptop and charger. If you're the kind of person who likes to work or keep you know up on email or transfer photos, uh, it's always helpful. Cords and chargers for your gadgets, a flash drive. Uh, one pro tip that most people don't think about. I actually bring a plug strip with me when I travel like a old surge protector. I shove it in the side of my backpack. This will make you friends 
in the hostel and in the airports, because when you're at the airports, the moment you need an outlet for your laptop is going to be the moment everyone's there using outlets. And there will be another dude also looking for an outlet. And then you're going to be the cool person who pulls out your plug strip and says, Hey, can I plug this in? And like, we can share this outlet. And of course they will say yes. And the other person will come up and say, Oh my God, thank you so much. And you're officially the cool guy who brought the plug strip because you are prepared. So, Hey, do that. I also bring a small first aid kit. Um, This is useful for bandaging blisters because at least in Japan, you will probably be walking a lot more than you're used to, especially if you're like me and you like to go hiking and maybe you weren't smart and your your feet got sweaty and you didn't bring the best shoes. Uh, Like you decided to walk 10 miles around Tokyo in Converse like I did. So yeah, blister stuff is good. Flip-flops are good for the showers and just chilling around in the hostel or when you're in in the morning and you want to walk out to the convenience store. Flip-flops are nice. And lastly, an umbrella. I bring an umbrella everywhere I go. It's always in the bottom of my backpack. Never have to think about it, but when it rains, I'm the guy that can pull the umbrella out, be dry, and everyone else is like, man, I really wish I could do that. Um, When I was in New York a couple of years ago, this happened. Huge rainstorm came out of nowhere, and I was the one guy with an umbrella. Well, the two friends I was with ran into Dwayne Reed, bought themselves umbrellas, and now they also do the same thing. So keep an umbrella in your backpack, and you're going to be a happy person. Now, that's my main bag. I actually leave that at the hostel most days. Like I said before, Japan does not have too much crime, so you don't have to worry about it. And uh, I have a day bag. It's a very small little like shoulder strap bag that goes inside the backpack when I'm traveling long distance. But then for just day to day going out, having fun, uh, that's what I keep with me. That gets my iPhone, my passport, because when you're in another country, you need to have your passport with you. If you're stopped by the police and they ask to have you show it to them, you are legally obligated to do that. So keep the passport with you. Uh, keep my wallet in there, my mobile USB battery, like I said. And then uh, if I am wanting to do some better photography, I would bring my camera. Kind of a pain. I'm not one of those dudes who likes to lug around a big camera bag. But as a content creator, I'd like to be able to use the photos I take. So better quality is going to benefit me in the long run. So I'll keep my, my camera in the day bag. But often I'll just pull my iPhone out to take like very casual pictures. And then the hotspot is in there as well. So that's my travel kit. And uh, you can use that as a starting point for your own needs uh, and you'll be good. So there's a few other things on my list that I didn't talk about too much. Um, Let's see here. I'll talk about some online resources, language learning and um, apps that I recommend. So let's start with language because I'm doing this 10 day Japanese learning language Uh, challenge on my YouTube channel. Now, I've been studying Japanese um, maybe for about a year's time, I want to say, maybe a little bit more. The thing is, I stopped right when I got back from the 2013 trip. So I've been stagnating for about two years, and I forgot a lot of what I learned. So the, the Japanese learning challenge for me is more a how can I get back to that original level of of proficiency and maybe learn a little bit more on top of that, some more practical things that'll be of use to me while I'm traveling instead of a let's go from zero to fluent challenge. Um, if you don't know anything in a language, I still think a lot of the you know resources that I recommend and um, you know language learning tactics are going to be useful to you. But me personally, I'm not doing a zero to fluency challenge. That said, Japanese has three syllabaries. Uh, what you can think of as alphabets, it's a little bit different. One's called hiragana. Uh, it is their main alphabet basically, their main celebrity. And there's one called Katakana. These are characters used for foreign words. And then there is the kanji. So basically, over generations and dynasties, 
China brought over their kanji, the very complicated symbols, thousands of them, over to Japan. And since dynasties changed over the years and they changed what the official kanji were, Japan got lots and lots of different dynasties worth of kanji. So as you can probably guess, many of them have different pronunciations. Uh, they have Japanese pronunciations. They have Chinese pronunciations. The Japanese are called kunyomi. The Chinese ones are called onyomi. And you have to learn a lot of these. Luckily, there are very good tools out there these days. And also, luckily, there are only about 2,000 that you need to know to basically be proficient in everyday life. These are what the Japanese government have defined as the joyo kanji. So there are some tools I use. One's called Wanikani, which is a space repetition app specifically for kanji learning. And it's made by the people who run the Tofugu blog, also a great resource. And they also make a product called Textfugu, which is an online Japanese textbook. That's where I started my journey, my journey for learning this language. It's a great place to start, I think, if you're also looking to do it. And uh, I also have a bunch of other resources that I'll be talking about. And let's see here. Next Thursday is, or I guess this coming Thursday, if you're listening on the launch day for this podcast, will be the video on changing answers. Next Thursday will be the first week that I'm in Japan, and I will be doing my day one update or I guess intro video on the Japanese learning challenge. And in that video, I will be giving you like a brain dump of lots of different Japanese resources that I'm using. So stick around for that video. If you want to see some more resources, um, as with any foreign language trip, it's useful to learn some key phrases. So one little tip for me to you, if you're going to be traveling to any country is to, before you leave, uh, get out a sheet of notebook paper and just like brainstorm a bunch of phrases that you would like to be able to say and understand things like how much is this? Where's the bathroom? Where's the best place to sleep? Like a hostel around here. Uh, how do I get to the train station? How do I get money? All these things that might be good to ask somebody if you're lost. Good stuff to have. So apps that I recommend having. If you've got your own phone with you, eh, you're good to go. And I recommend Dropbox. And one thing I do recommend doing is taking high-res pictures of your IDs, credit cards, passport, all that stuff, keeping them in a folder on Dropbox just in case you lose your stuff, but you have your phone. Your phone should always be glued to you. I don't know why you wouldn't. I don't know. I like to slap check my pockets a lot, so I always know it's there. But, you know, just in case you like left it at the hostel or something and got stolen or, I don't know, Godzilla attacked and it's all gone, you at least have high-res pictures to prove to the police I am who I say I am, or if you need the numbers off of it, like, you've got access to that stuff. So basically, just keep copies of stuff. Uh, Evernote is really great because you can save travel articles and tips and advice into it. Um, I basically keep all my flight confirmation information in there. I keep uh, lots of other weird stuff that I can't remember right now. Basically, just all sorts of bits of information that I can't remember because my brain is for idea having, not idea storing. And it goes into Evernote. So the Evernote app is uh, essential. And I believe that Evernote premium is a very good purchase because it allows for offline note viewing. So for whatever reason, if I can't access the internet, Evernote premium lets me look at my notes offline. Um, for whatever country you're going to, in my case, Japan, there's apps for common phrases. It'll tell you how to say them, how to spell them. There's one called Japanese plus. Uh, it's free, I think. So I keep that on my phone. Google translates also very useful and getting better every single day. Google Maps is a lifesaver, especially in places like Tokyo, where it's just absolutely crazy layout of the city. You don't know where you're going. It'll tell you the train schedule. Part of it is amazing. It'll tell you exactly when the next train is coming, how you can get there, uh, and then it'll take you right to where you want to go. So really nice. I also put down favorites markers in Google Maps. So if I'm leaving my hostel, I will put a favorites marker on the hostel just in case I need it for later. Uh, like I said, the hostel world app is very useful. 
Uh, Skype is useful. Your bank's app is very useful. So keep that there. Airline app of your choice. So I usually, I have tended to fly Delta most of the times. And this isn't to say I have some sort of loyalty to Delta, but a lot of times their prices for Des Moines are pretty good. So I go with them a lot and uh, I can book flights really easily through their app. So I do. Spotify is great. Audible is great for, you know, keeping yourself entertained on the flight. So uh, let's see your resources. I have a couple. Uh, I mentioned the Tofugu blog. They actually have started reviewing specific locations for travelers, and those are cool. But the main two you're going to want to keep in your brain if you're going to Japan is number one, japanguide.com. That's actually japan-guide.com. Probably the most extensive website out there for uh, information related to traveling Japan. And I ended up saving ridiculous amounts of pages from this site into my Evernote account. Huge lifesaver. Also, Wiki Travel, um, very much like Wikipedia, but for travel information for any destination you can think of, they've got uh, sections on how to get there, how to get in, how to get out, where to stay, where to eat, how to stay safe, what to do, history. It's amazing. Um, their pages on most places, like most at least populated places in Japan, are really well fleshed out, nicely updated, a great resource. And Wiki Travel will work for basically any destination you're going to. When I'm bored, sometimes I'll go on Wiki Travel and like look at their pages for weird, obscure remote locations in Russia and stuff just to see. So, hey guys, that's all I've got for you in this podcast episode. I ended up talking longer than I planned, actually. But hopefully you found it interesting and maybe helpful if you're planning on traveling in the future. Some of this stuff will still be useful if you're planning on studying abroad. Speaking of that, that'll be one of the topics that I want to get covered pretty soon after I relaunch, or I guess, re I don't know, it's not really a reboot or a relaunch, it's just starting up again. Uh, yeah, once I start the podcast up again after the vacation, I want to get some people who know their stuff about studying abroad. So we'll get those people on the show, um, but some of these tips will be useful to you, even if you're studying abroad with a group. So thanks for listening. You can find show notes for this episode over at CIGpodcast.com. The episode 62 link on that page will get you... Uh, all the kind of links and stuff that I talked about in this episode, as well as uh, instructions on how to subscribe and leave a review for the show if you'd like to. Doing that in iTunes will really help bump it up the rankings, so that helps a lot. So hey, thanks for sticking with me this far. I will see you, well, uh, what did I say? June 8th or June 15th, whichever one ends up being the best time for me. And until then, stay cute. I'm on Twitter at Tom Frankly. You can tweet me if you've got questions. Uh, my email is thomas at collegeinfogeek.com. Can't re- I can't uh, promise super fast response times while I'm in the country. Otherwise, my girlfriend will slap me real hard for not having fun and working too much. But if you've got questions, you can still email me and I'll do my best to get back to you. So, hey, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the College Info Geek Podcast. Grow your brain even more at www.collegeinfogeek.com.